Mark chapter 12. This isn't quite yet the full return to our exegetical series through Mark. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. This is another special message this morning. Before we launch the message, I just wanted to make a quick comment about a dear friend, Jesse Fenn, who is over here to my right and your left, and Liz. Jesse and Liz have felt called by the Lord with others to join Bart and Jessica in this mission that we've embraced as a church to renew Christ Church in Conroe. And Jesse, over the next number of weeks, is going to be doing some intensive training uh, in Florida, I believe is where it is, uh, for his new job. So I just wanted to seize a quick moment while you're sitting there in front of me and just say how grateful I am for you as a family, how much we have benefited from your skill in leading worship. And though we are grieving, yet we are thrilled to sow you into the gospel mission. So I just want you to know that, how grateful we are for you. Can we just take a quick moment and thank Jesse and Liz for their service to us as a church? There will be other, other moments uh, to thank them and the Lipscombs and others uh, more intentionally. We're going to have a send-off Sunday. Uh, we're looking forward to that where we can kind of formally pray and lay hands on this team that's going to be going out and um, thank them, commend them, express our gratefulness for them. Uh, but we are, we are very much in a happy, sad sort of way looking forward to that moment. It, it seems to be a season of sowing for us as a church. It's a, it's a sowing season, and we are sowing people into the mission in a, a more pronounced way in this next couple of months. And this morning, I want to talk about another kind of sowing that we're always called to do, but we believe as pastors there is a unique opportunity to sow uh, in this way coming right in front of us. So with that anticipation, let's, let's read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Lord, please bless the preaching and the obeying of your word. Well, this last Christmas morning, I received what I think might be the most generous Christmas present I've ever received on Christmas morning. Uh, My children love giving Christmas presents, (laughs) but of course their funds are quite limited Uh, Usually we take them to the dollar store or five below or the bargain section of Target or somewhere before Christmas so they can purchase some little gift for each of the other family members. Uh, So this Christmas morning, uh, when I was opening a gift from one of my sons, I was expecting something in that kind of range, meaningful, sweet, but relatively low priced. I was quite surprised, as you can imagine, to discover when I unwrapped the package a rigid power drill. Now, if you don't know what that is, um, I barely know what that is, so don't be concerned. But it's a really, really nice drill, okay? Think of it as a drill that's way beyond my mechanical ability. This is like a Mark Wally, Aaron Mayfield kind of drill, Josh Dow. That's the kind of drill this is. Probably I should have a license to operate it, but it was an impressive drill. And so I assumed, it's it's relatively expensive, I assumed, okay, well, he must have kind of gone in on this with my wife or my parents or somebody had kind of joined him. But no, I was told, no, 
He had purchased this all himself. He was determined. He was determined to buy it with his own money. Five months before, when he had seen me borrow a good drill like that, he had determined he wanted to get one for me. He wanted me to have one. Now, for a person who makes $2 on the random extra chore around the house and saves his once-a-year birthday money from grandma, this was a ridiculous, overwhelming present. I found myself getting emotional right there on our living room floor, thinking about what he had given up to get this for me. And what, what made this the most generous Christmas present I think I've ever received? It, it's not that it was the most expensive present. Probably at some point in my life, somebody has given me a more expensive present. What made it the most generous present was the sacrifice the sacrifice that it represented. It was based on what he had to give and what he gave. Generosity is measured by sacrifice. It's not measured by the amount of the gift, but the cost to the giver. It's measured not by how much you give, but how little you leave for yourself. That is the point that Jesus is making towards an even more generous gift in this passage given by this widow. And the title this morning is Growing in Giving, because He presents this widow to us as a, a provocation, a definition that we're meant to measure against our own giving. Surely that's the reason this is preserved for us in this passage. Surely that's the reason Jesus slows down the Mark and narrative to focus on this widow so that we can benefit from her. Now, of course, this would always be an appropriate topic on any series about the Christian life, but we have a particular pastoral reason uh, for wanting to study this passage and this topic today. As pastors, we have been praying and thinking for some time about our, our long-term plans for gathering as a church. Uh, so that you can know, the hotel who's been very kind to host us uh, for this last very unusual year has informed us that beginning in July, the second week in July, we will no longer be able to gather here. Now, we currently do have reservations, so to speak, at Tippett Middle School that have not yet been canceled, and we are hoping that by the grace of God, the timing will just work out perfectly, and that we'll be able to re-enter that wonderful space just as we are leaving this one. However, before uh, at, at, when they've had this reservation, they have uh, had taken the opportunity to cancel it, so you can be praying with us that that will not be the case, uh, and that we'll be able to re-enter Tippett in the coming days. But this last year has certainly accelerated, as you can imagine, our sense of a need for a long-term gathering place that we could call our own, at least eventually, at some point in the church's life, that we would not be beholden to the needs or whims or different priorities of landlords, which we've obviously faced this year. And as we've considered our, our current financial position as a church, the growing size of our church, the changes in culture, uh, the needs for our future, and as we begin to study some of the land and the land prices, which are increasing in this area, we thought the time would be right for us to launch a land and building fund. So, with that as a pastoral burden, which I'll get to later on in the message a little more in detail, we, we wanted to talk about this category of growing in giving, because that project, let alone our ongoing needs as a church, requires a, a definition of generosity, and more importantly than either of those reasons, our maturity as Christians requires a definition of generosity that the Lord Jesus provides for us right here in Mark 12. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to divide this message into two sections. First, we'll walk through Mark's story, and we'll land on Jesus' main point, giving attention to this widow, and then we'll transition to talk about our application, our application as a church, our response to this as a church. Let's walk through the story first of all. Look down here with me at verse 41 of Mark chapter 12. 
You want to notice in verse 41 that Mark states that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now, Jesus apparently is looking for something in verse 41. Now, in Mark, this is somewhat unusual because in Mark especially, Jesus is always on the move. There's a very important word that many commentators point out in Mark that he uses again and again and again. It's the word immediately. It's like Jesus only finishes one job to immediately move on to the next job. He finishes one ministry moment to immediately move on to the next ministry moment. He is a man of action. He's a man of decision, making decisions for ministry again and again and again. So it is, it is somewhat striking, especially in this particular gospel, to describe Jesus as sitting down, watching, and waiting. We can be sure in light of the contrast with the rest of Mark's depiction of Jesus, that Jesus is slowing down the pace for a very specific reason. He wants to make a very important point, so important that he is willing to watch and wait the ordinary offerings at the temple until the right teaching moment arrives. Now, what is this temple and the treasury that is receiving these offerings from the people. The temple was the place where God's people gathered three times a year to offer sacrifices, to commemorate themselves to the Lord. It was the place where the priest represented the people on the Day of Atonement. It was the symbolic religious center of God's people. It was central to the mission of God on earth until the coming of the true and ultimate temple, Jesus Christ. The symbol was so important that in just the previous chapter, Jesus is found in righteous anger, driving out buyers and sellers and denouncing them as thieves who are defiling the holy place of prayer for all nations. The people of Israel were called by law to give a percentage of what they had earned back to the Lord, a way of demonstrating that all that they had came from Him a way of declaring their trust and priority of him over every earthly possession and good. So Jesus comes to watch the people of God give back to God. He watches and he waits. Mark says that many rich people put in large sums, but for some reason none of these large amounts are what Jesus came to see can use modern monetary denominations, you might think, well, there's, there's a guy that comes and puts a million dollars in. Jesus is unimpressed. Look at that, 100,000. Jesus is unimpressed. 10,000. Unimpressed. He's not seeing what he wants to see. Then a poor widow comes and puts in two small copper coins which make a penny. Finally, Jesus has found the living lesson he was looking for. He's found the lesson that he stopped his activity, he paused, he waited, and here comes this poor widow. Important that we understand in that culture, in that culture, a widow would have represented an extremely vulnerable individual, a, a, a person who is in need And this is a poor widow. This is not a widow of great means who could sustain herself in some ongoing way. The passage makes it clear that this this pittance was literally what she had to live on, perhaps until she could be paid again for whatever she did to sustain herself. This is what she had until the next paycheck came. This was all she had. And he puts it in. Jesus sees her drop it in, and he calls his disciples to point her out. Truly, I say to you, he says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This woman, in her poverty, in her generosity, draws Jesus' attention, and Jesus decides to make her a lesson, not only for his disciples, but through the inspiration of God's Word, for every generation of Christians leading up to this present moment this morning right here in this room. 
This widow, of all the people that gave that day, this widow is preserved. This widow is, we could say, canonized in the canon of Scripture. She is held up as an example. Look, if you want to know what draws Jesus' gaze, the kind of generosity that he notices, what he thinks should be a a healthy example for his followers to notice and see, says don't be impressed by the rich giving out of their abundance. Don't be impressed by those who give what they will not miss, who give without sacrifice, who give without any necessary trust. Be impressed by this woman who gives all she had to live on. Notice her. The Lord Jesus comes to every Christian, to every reader of Mark, and he says, pay attention to this widow. In the same way that he drew attention to Mary, as we talked about a few weeks ago, in her lavish, extravagant worship of Jesus or pouring out the ointment on him, he draws their attention to this widow. He says, look, do you see that widow? Don't miss this lesson. Learn the lesson of the widow, Jesus might say. I like what commentator D. Edmund Hybert says about the widow. He says, in giving her two mites, she had given all that she possessed, all her living, her entire means of subsistence. Because of her gift, she would need to fast until she could earn more. In giving to God her last means of support, she had completely entrusted herself to his care. Although her gift was only two small copper coins, her faith-prompted love made that gift entirely of gold in the eyes of the Lord. Now let's pay attention to the, the way this passage works. Why does Jesus slow down? Why does Mark slow down the narrative and force us to pause and sit with Jesus and ask him the question, Jesus, why is this important enough for you to watch and wait? Couldn't you be healing people? Couldn't you be delivering people from demons? Why do you want to pause your flurry of activity, your supernatural power to teach us about this widow? Why is this so important? Because we need a powerful reminder of the true definition of generosity. Because our definition of generosity leaks. It leaks. Often if we're Christians, we have a certain definition. We've read this passage before. But gradually, over the years, and as other worries and burdens crowd into our lives, gradually our definition of generosity gradually declines, doesn't it? We begin to convince ourselves, I'm generous based on a dollar amount rather than based on a sacrificial amount. We might look back at some time in our life where we gave painfully, sacrificially, requiring a level of trust for our future. And perhaps we are giving even more than that from a monetary standpoint now, but the, the heart, trust, and faith is no longer the same because we have a certain margin. It's good to bring this widow right up to our giving, to ask ourselves the question, if, if we had gone to the temple that day and we had dropped in our regular giving, would Jesus have noticed us and nodded in approval? Or would he simply have said, out of their abundance? That's the, the provoking point of this passage. It, it comes to all of us. It came to me this week pressing me to ask the question, am am I giving in a a life-altering, a life-trusting kind of way? Or am I giving out of abundance, out of duty, out of just efficient kind of giving? Or am am I coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, this this costs me. It's, It's painful. I have to give up something. I have to trust you in a unique way to give in this way. That's what the widow does. And that's the giving that Jesus draws attention to. Jesus' point is not that the rich people should have put in nothing, but that Jesus sees their heart. It's not the amount that impresses Jesus, but the percentage of their sacrifice that draws his gaze. Jesus notes it is possible, it is possible, and don't we know this as well, it's possible to give what you won't truly miss. To give in such a way that it requires no trust in the Lord and and little true sacrifice on the part of the giver. That apparently is what he thought of these rich people giving out of their abundance. Since it didn't require any trust or sacrifice, he remained unimpressed. Instead, he values this woman above them, though in monetary terms, what she gives is negligible. It was extremely valuable, more valuable in the sight of Jesus. Jesus. 
Do not be impressed, Jesus would say, by large dollar amounts, but by large sacrifice. Don't be wowed by the wealthy giving what they won't miss, but by anyone giving at a level that requires them to trust their future to the Lord. What's the point? What's Jesus' point in drawing attention to this widow? Jesus is looking for life-changing generosity, for God-trusting generosity. Jesus is looking for life-changing, God-trusting generosity. This is at the same time liberating and convicting. Listen, this means you don't have to be wealthy to be wealthy towards God. That's, that's wonderful news for the Christian. No, there, there isn't a, a basic dollar amount to get into the club. I remember one time years and years ago, I had a friend of mine who had an extremely wealthy family member, and they belonged to a country club. And at one point, we were invited to go to lunch there, me and some classmates of mine. And I remember hearing the dollar amount that it took just to get into the membership of this club. It was a dollar amount beyond my comprehension how somebody could pay that just to be able to go somewhere for lunch, to play golf. It, it was a massive dollar amount. It was, it was a price you had to pay. I, I could never get into that club on my own. It was, the price vastly exceeded what I would be able to pay. Well, that, that's not the way... Christian giving is measured. There's not a dollar amount that says, look, once you reach this, you're in the platinum club. Or rather, we should say there, there is a platinum club, but it's measured by sacrifice, not by dollar amount. So can a rich person get in the platinum club? Yes, but it depends on how sacrificial they are. Can a five-year-old get into the platinum club? Yes, it depends on how sacrificial they are. Can a five-year-old giving 25 cents be as sacrificial as a millionaire giving much, much more? Yes. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns galaxies and universes. He knows where there's more gold and diamonds buried in this earth than we could possibly calculate. He doesn't need amounts. He calls for sacrifice. He's looking for the heart of his people. He's looking for hearts like this widow. He's not looking for those who come into the, the offering and just plunk down large amounts of coins and hope everybody notices that the, the dollar amount. No, he's looking for a heart that says, look, I, I gladly trust you with my future. He's looking at those who say, boy, th this would give me a lot of comfort for my future, but instead I'm going to entrust it to you and give it to the work of your temple and your kingdom. It's, it's liberating because if you're here and you're eight years old, do you know what? You can draw Jesus' attention with your generosity too. I don't care if you make eight bucks mowing lawns or $2 helping your mom organize the Tupperware cabinet or cleaning the van. I, it doesn't matter. You can be generous because generosity is measured not by the dollar amount, but by how sacrificial you are with what you actually have. And if you have much, much more than $2 organizing Tupperware drawers, let me challenge you to consider as well. What does sacrifice, life-giving, lifestyle-altering sacrifice look like for you? Here's the question. Is Jesus seeing life-trusting generosity in our giving? Isn't that the point of this passage? Is Jesus... Seeing life-trusting generosity in our giving? Is he seeing it in your giving? Is he seeing it in my giving? Life-trusting generosity? Now, it's important to understand, Jesus does not hold this woman's giving of all that she had as an absolute standard. We don't get the sense that she literally never kept money ever the rest of her life for herself. No, that's, that's not the point. It's not, the Bible doesn't hold us up and say, look, the, the only people who are generous are those who literally never have money. No, Proverbs talks about saving money. There's a place for providing for our family and household and even thinking somewhat about the future. Look, th those are legitimate things. But we all know they can also be ways that we justify giving in a way that is less than sacrificial and generous. Are we pressing towards sacrificial giving, life-trusting giving, lifestyle-changing giving? When's the last time you gave an amount of money that changed your plans, that altered your sense of financial security? 
That's what this woman is doing to an extreme. If our giving had taken place that day, would the Lord have nodded in affirmation or simply warned us? You're giving simply out of your abundance. Jesus is calling his disciples to pay attention because he wants to motivate his church. Look, this is the kind of giving that should attract your gaze. This is the kind of giving you should want to emulate. This is the kind of giving that real discipleship looks like. Mark, we'll get into this as we get deeply into Mark the remainder of this year. Mark is very concerned about discipleship. He's concerned about what it means to really be a follower of Jesus, not just a a religious attender or somebody who affirms general doctrine. He wants to know, is, is the heart... Is the heart totally surrendered to the Lord Jesus? Is the heart of a true disciple truly giving of itself completely, not holding anything back, but giving of itself completely to the Lord? And he's, he's looking at this widow as a great example of what that looks like in terms of the checkbook. Jesus' point is that true generosity is measured by sacrifice, not by what we give, but what we keep over for ourselves. It's life-trusting, life-changing, lifestyle-altering giving. That's the call of this passage. Now, let's talk about our response as a church. It's very, very important. We've been talking about this throughout the series, that we not just hear God's Word on Sundays, but that we apply God's Word in the ordinary, everyday life decisions that we make. Anybody can sit in church and say, yes, that's good, we should give, and then not do anything about it. That's not what a a Christian does. A Christian hears God's word and then responds, says, Lord, how can I change? How can you change me in light of this passage? Now, in talking about our response, I want to say four different things. The first three I'll say quickly, but I think they're important. I want to not miss them. First of all, the first thing I want to say in our response to this as a church is I want to say thank you to the members of our church who have given faithfully and generously so that the work of the gospel could go forward in this church so that we could plant this church and more than that, so we could serve and support other church plants and the mission of our family of churches around the world. So the first thing I want to say in response to this passage is thank you for giving. Now, because as pastors, we take very, very seriously the command of the Lord not to show any partiality, and we distrust our own hearts, we do not know what amount anyone gives in this church. That's handled by administrative staff, but we do do not know that, okay? So I don't actually know (laughs) what you give, and I I prefer it that way. We prefer it that way. But I know that there's money in the bank, and I do pay attention to that, and so I know it keeps you know, being present there for us to pay our bills and pay salaries and pay electric bills and pay for sound equipment and pay for this hotel and so forth. So thank you for giving. Thank you for sacrificing. Thank you for laying down your lives. Thank you for giving up extra vacations or that extra purchase in the home or maybe a slightly larger home, so that you can give faithfully. Thank you, and especially thank you to those of you who take seriously the Bible's command to give faithfully and sacrificially in an ongoing way to the work of the gospel. Thank you for giving. Look, I I am not the Lord, and only the Lord knows your heart, but I, I want to, if I can, bring us back to this passage, and if you have been giving faithfully and sacrificially, I want to commend you the way he commends this widow. Thank you for giving. Thank you for not being caught up in the materialism of this world, the idolatry of stuff. Thank you for investing in heaven, investing in ministry. That means that you're a part of every counseling session, every message, every gathering, every worship song. You are investing in the spiritual harvest that will be produced by those ministries. Thank you. Thank you for giving. And not only does your giving affect this church, it affects people around the world. I was thinking just in preparation for this message, message some of the things that we've been able to give to even just this, this last year or so. This last year, a pastoral partner named Wilbrod Chanda in Zambia died of COVID. He's an associate of Sovereign Grace Churches. And, and we were able personally as a church to send some money to, to help support his widow and family with some of their immediate expenses. We were able to send some money to support Michael Granger and his team 
who are planting a church in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, because of your giving. We're able to send money to support Barnabas in Nepal when they're facing extreme food shortages because of some of the crisis with COVID earlier this last year. And, and we've been able to meet a, a number of local needs, people facing financial difficulties and distress, and even beyond our, our benevolent giving as a church, you've given personally to people that we're aware of as pastors to help support them in moments of need. Listen, thank you for giving. Thank you for not loving money more than the Lord. Thank you for not loving stuff more than the Lord. Thank you for giving. I, I, I'm not bringing this message because of some corrective impulse as pastors. I mean, we need to get, get these people to give. Man. No, no, no. We, we want to thank you. We want to affirm you that we have seen God's grace at work over the history of our church in gracious, generous, sacrificial giving. Now, in saying that, in saying that, I, I, I don't want to affirm because I don't know who gives. I don't want to affirm you. If you're not giving, then don't be encouraged by my affirmation of giving, okay? But if you are giving, please receive our gratefulness and our affirmation and our affection. It's a joy to celebrate the harvest of your monetary sowing for the sake of the gospel. Second thing I want to say regarding our response is that if this is not your church home, and you're listening to this message online, or you happen to be a guest here this morning, please prioritize faithfully and generously supporting the work of the gospel where you live. Please, let me encourage you to do so. I am not using this message as a way to gain money that should rightly go to other pastors and churches and works that are faithfully caring for and watching over a different flock. Please, if you're not a part of this church, we would urge you, give faithfully and generously where you are cared for and the body in which you are a part. Third, I want to speak to anyone here who has never or rarely given generously to the work of the gospel. It is possible that some here have rarely or never given generously to the gospel. There are people who think of generous giving as an occasional extra few dollars that, that they give in Easter and Christmas or that they occasionally chip in a, a, a few dollars here or there, but they do not give faithfully and regularly. And there might be a number of reasons for this. Perhaps you've never been taught that giving money is a part of a Christian's duty to the Lord. Perhaps you've never been taught that. Perhaps no one ever relayed to you Jesus' warning that we are not to be focused on hoarding up treasures on this earth, but rather to be investing wherever we can, sacrificially and joyfully, to the work of the kingdom. Familiar passage in Matthew 6, Jesus makes this point. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Perhaps you've never heard those verses and nobody's ever told you that before. Listen, I, I have good news for you. As terrifying as it may seem, it is actually joyfully liberating to give generously to the Lord because it is the one investment that has absolute divine guarantee of a return. Absolute divine guarantee that if you sow to spiritual things, you will reap a spiritual harvest. It is not guaranteed that God will return all of that money to you physically. Though I do know stories, and I'm sure you do too, of how when people give generously, God provides for them in miraculous ways that is a delight to see. But it is certainly the case that God marks down every generous gift from his people and will certainly commend and restore that to them when we see him face to face. Listen, there is a joy in that. There is simply nowhere else you can give like that. 
I don't care if you're into Bitcoin, Amazon, or what other stock you like. Look, there is nothing that can give a return guarantee like God himself marking down what you are giving. So if you've never given, listen, you are missing out on the liberating effect of setting yourself free from the love of money and the craving and anxiety that comes when we're looking to ourselves to provide exclusively for our future. Listen, if you're not giving, I guarantee you, you are more of a slave to money than God wants you to be. It doesn't matter if you make $10 a year or a million dollars a year. If you are not giving, you are a slave at some level to the money you are making. And God wants you to be free. God wants you to trust him. God wants you to see him as your provider. God wants you to view him the way this widow did. So let me encourage you. If you have never or rarely given, if an occasional offering is the extent of your giving, and you don't set aside a percentage, if you need a recommendation, the, the tithe in the Old Testament was 10%, is, is commended in the Old Testament. We would consider that to be a wise starting point for giving. A wise place to begin is to look at your income and say, I'm going to regularly give 10%, and then if I can give more than that, I should give as much as it, as it feels like sacrifice to give. I shouldn't stop there, but it's a good place to start. And if you can't imagine how in the world you could live while giving 10% of your income away, let alone more than that, listen, let me bring you to this widow, and more importantly, to the Savior who is watching her. I will guarantee you that God provided for this widow. She did not starve. Let me encourage you. If you are not giving, the Lord wants to set you free to set your mind on things above. If your giving is occasional and exceptional rather than regular and sacrificial, the Lord wants to set you free. He wants to bring you into the company of this widow. One of my favorite quotes about giving, it, it's good to lay before us, not only as a, a conviction, but as a challenge by author Randy Alcorn. He says, what you do with your resources in this life is your autobiography. Now, these first three things are the most important things to be said this morning. Thank you to those of you who are giving faithfully. Always give first and foremost to your local church home. And if you have never given, let me encourage and urge you to change that practice immediately. Begin to invest a portion of your income regularly at the feet of Jesus for the sake of his kingdom. But then the fourth thing I want to say, fourth thing I want to say is that I want to urge us to grow in giving. I want to urge us to grow in giving. Of course, like all things, we don't want to reach a point which we say, well, we, we have arrived at maturity there. <laughs> and I think the Lord couldn't possibly see any ways we could grow. No, we, we want to keep growing in giving. I suspect that none of us have attained to the level of this widow yet. Uh, so there's always ways we can grow in generosity. In particular, as I said earlier, I want to lay in front of us this opportunity of a, a land and building fund, what we, I think we're going to call the Generations Project. As pastors, as we've prayed about our future and our mission to reach this area, and as we've been contemplating the growing size of our church and some of the, the limitations and vulnerabilities of renting facilities, we believe the time is right to formally begin asking you to consider giving towards a, a, an over and above land and building fund, this generation's project that can perhaps lead eventually to the purchase of a physical location that can bear witness to this community for generations to come. Just for a few facts, we consistently have over 200 people in our Sunday gatherings now. Easter morning this year was over 300. We don't assume or demand any particular size for our church but we do want to be prepared to welcome whatever guests the Lord may bring to us. And you may have noticed a lot of people are continuing to move to this area. We also, so that you know, have a firm goal of having one service as a church so that the body can gather all together. Though we would certainly submit to multiple services for an emergency or a very exceptional season 
Uh, We believe the New Testament envisions the church gathering as a single body. It's actually literally what the Greek word for church means, assembly. And it would be our goal that we would have a facility where that practice can continue. Obviously, if we didn't have that as a theological priority, we could rent a much smaller space and just meet multiple services indefinitely. Most importantly, we want to invest in the gospel witness of future generations of Redemption Hill. We've been laying the theological foundations of this church for the first eight years, and we believe that the Lord is calling us to lay a physical foundation and create a facility where future pastors and children can preach and sing and hear of the good news of Jesus Christ, can fellowship together, can bear witness to this community, And because this final reason is the most compelling to us, that's why we're looking to call this a generations project. Just for a few more little details, we're going to have a a brief informational meeting after Sunday next week, just right here, just for for members or or interested guests, just to to provide some, some basic information about what we've discovered as we've done some research of land in this area. And actually, we have found that some land is not entirely out of our reach, partially because God has enabled us over the years to save diligently towards this end. So we do have some money set aside in this direction already. We're not starting from scratch. And we think that the Lord might have us in a place where we're not actually that far off, where a land purchase could be possible without overburdening or or crushing us as a church. So next week after church, if if you'd like, we'd we'd like to invite you to come and just sit for a few minutes and just try to provide some more detailed questions in that regard. We're, We're talking about continuing to represent this fund to our church and that leading up to a moment on May 16th, that Sunday, we would take a special offering and we would also take pledges, because we understand we, we would encourage you, if you're able to give a one-time special gift to this, that would be great. But we also want to encourage you to consider some kind of pledge of what you might be able to give over the next year. So we would have some idea, even as we continue to look at land, okay, what, what kind of uh, money do we think we might be working with here? So we can have a, a responsible conversation with realtors. Uh, we, we don't want to be wasting their time if we can. Now, all of this is, is exciting, Because it could be that the Lord could allow us to serve our future generations so that they don't necessarily have to sojourn the way we have and will continue to have to probably for years to come. It could allow them to use the money that we've used in renting spaces to devote that to other kinds of ministry, staff and church planting and so forth. And and it's exciting to invest in that future because also, as the culture changes, it's, it's nice to have a, a place where we would have a bit more control over the parameters of our gathering. We don't know what the Lord is going to do. As pastors, we've been praying, we've been asking, we've been looking at dollar amounts, building costs, and saying, well, Lord, you, I mean, we have some, but you are going to have to provide if you want us to move forward with this, you're going to have to provide because we don't want to put a massive burden of debt on the future generations. That's not our vision at all. Our goal is to basically serve them rather than have them serve us. But it's exciting to think about how the Lord might give us grace to sow in these ways. Ultimately, It leads us back to this passage. We want to be a generous church. Now, the reason I'm I'm using this passage and calling us to kind of over and above generosity is it's it's not going to work if everybody stops giving to our general fund so they they can start giving to a special offering. Uh, That's going to answer one need just to create another need. Uh, That's not going to work at all. So this is going to require having giving over and above what we're already giving to sustain the ordinary ministry functions, administrative functions of this church. Thus, the need to talk about generosity. We want to introduce this topic to encourage you to pray about how the Lord might stir you to generosity. It's going to require sacrifice and patience, but because of the 
historic faithfulness of our church. Our regular bills are being paid, and, and we want to give in a way that trusts our personal financial future to the Lord, and we want to be excited about the future of the living temple, which is Redemption Hill Church, and whether that living temple might have a, a physical location. This is going to be giving that requires trust, trust like the widow had in the Lord to provide for her needs. It requires spiritual growth that all of us lay aside good things in this life, things that we would enjoy in order to give, investing in the future of the advanced work of the kingdom of God. For all of us, I would encourage us to get to know this widow. Don't make this message the last time you study her in the near future. Jesus has given her to us as an example. And as we think about the future of our building, let's allow what she gave to set the bar for us. But more than this widow, I want to encourage you to study the person waiting and watching that day in the temple. The greatest example of generosity in this passage is not the widow. It's the incarnate Son of God who is waiting for her. Mark describes Jesus as the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He presents him here not as one looking down from on high in a rich and powerful position, removed from suffering and sacrifice, evaluating the giving of others, but one who had come to give even more than this widow. The greatest value of the widow ultimately is not even in her example to us, but that she gives a foretaste, a sense of what the Son of Man came to do. We have been saved by a sacrifice greater than the widow. In her gift, in a small way, she points to the greatest gift of all. She gave her livelihood, and Jesus gave his very life. Now, our giving should reflect this widow, but more profoundly, it should reflect the Savior watching this widow and watching us as well. Who is watching us as we come to give Sunday by Sunday, as we evaluate our budget and make our monetary decisions, the one who laid down his life to save us. He, though he was rich, became poor. He laid aside his glory, took on human form, and though perfect, bore the weight of our sins, the debt of our sins. He, though sinless, took on our crushing guilt, and he granted us the impossible treasure of being called children of God given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. D. Edmund Hebert says, Jesus valued the widow's sacrificial giving so much because it was a foregleam of his own giving. She gave her entire livelihood. He gave his very life. Brothers and sisters, this, this is our call. To study the widow, yes, but to study the one who was watching the widow, who gave his life for us. And that now, in response, in gratefulness and adoration, we lay down our lives before him. We say to him, Lord, how can we give to you? How can we give to your mission, to your ministry, to your gospel? How can we honor your name? How can we sacrifice for the one who sacrificed for us? Charles Spurgeon says it this way, He who loves Jesus consecrates to him all that he has. Now let's pause there for just a moment. Have we done that recently? It's a good thing to do just in the quiet of our own hearts. Lord, all that I have belongs to you. All that I have belongs to you. It is dedicated to your service. What a terrifying and delightfully liberating prayer to pray. What an appropriate and godly prayer to pray. All that I have belongs to you. And then through prayer and fasting and searching of the Lord, we could then be surprised that he seems to free us to use so much of it to provide for ourselves. But that's a very different way than saying, Lord, how little do I have to give? All that I have, Lord, 
belongs to you. He who loves Jesus consecrates to him all that he has and feels it a delight that he may lay anything at the feet of him who laid down his life for us. Now, brothers and sisters, here is the question I want to urge us to pause for a moment and take to the Lord. Have you, have I, recently, with faith and honesty, said to the Lord, Lord, take all I have. Lord, what would sacrificial generosity look like for you? Lord, where are you calling me to grow in giving? Listen, let me make the point again. I would much rather a church full of poor people who are maturing and growing in generosity, though we have little dollars in the bank, than a church full of rich people who make us bazillionaires as a church and yet are not growing in true giving. This isn't about the dollar amount or the kind of building we would be able to buy or having some kind of impressive bank account. Who cares? God doesn't. What matters is the spiritual state of heart that says, Lord, all I have belongs to the one who gave his life to save me. Here's what I want to do today. A little bit different. Rob's going to come up and, and play right now, but we're not going to sing. I, I wanted us just to pause for a moment and personally say that to the Lord. And let me, let me encourage you. This can be a, a scary prayer to pray, but it's a good prayer in response to this word, to this passage and other passages like it. Lord, set me free from any love of money and what it can buy. And show me, Lord, how I can dedicate myself and what I have to you. I would encourage you to ask him, what does it look like to give generously to the Lord in this season? Let's take a minute and just declare that to the Lord quietly in our seats. You can bow your head and just pray personally to him. And Lord Jesus, most of all, thank you for becoming poor. Thank you for not having a place to lay your head. Thank you for hungering and thirsting. Thank you for giving yourself to save us. And thank you, Lord, for pointing out this widow to us. Lord, may we find her good company walk forward in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.